Welcome to this Purdue Engineering Podcast, which is part of the College of Engineering's Rising to the Challenge series, featuring research that addresses critical issues related to societal resilience in the face of crises, and efforts to engineer long-term solutions for a more sustainable future. My name is John Sutherland, and I am the Fazenfeld Family Head of Environmental and Ecological Engineering, or as we say, Triple E. This is one of three episodes highlighting a range of environmental and ecological engineering research efforts. Before I introduce our faculty for today's episode, I'd like to share a little bit about Triple E. Triple E is the youngest department in the College of Engineering at Purdue. Our first bachelor's students graduated in 2013, and our graduate program was launched in 2016. In about 10 years, we have grown into one of the largest environmental engineering programs in the country. Triple E embraces two themes in our education and research programs. Classical environmental engineering that seeks to address contaminated media through treatment, control, and containment, and industrial sustainability that stresses the creation of engineering systems that exist in harmony with nature's cycles and processes. It is this latter emphasis that makes Triple E unique relative to other environmental engineering programs. At its core, Triple E has an emphasis on ensuring the safety and health of people. With this in mind, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Andrew Welton, an associate professor in Triple E in civil engineering, and Dr. Caitlin Proctor, currently a Lillian Gilbreth postdoctoral fellow, who will join Triple E in agricultural and biological engineering as an assistant professor in January 2021. Drs. Welton and Proctor, I'd like you to start by explaining the plumbing safety issues created by the COVID-19 pandemic and what your team is doing to solve this problem. So we were on a phone call with some members of the lab group trying to plan how to shut down our lab because we were realizing that campus was going to completely shut down for who knew how long. Uh, And as we were planning this shutdown, I think I said to Andy or Andy said to me, well, that's going to mean a lot of the water in the buildings is going to sit stagnant for this long as well. Uh, And at that point, we decided to apply for a rapid response research grant from the National Science Foundation. As we were writing this grant, we realized that stagnation was happening in a lot of buildings and a lot of different scenarios. So Andy, can you talk about a few of these other scenarios that we were thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, stagnation, right, isn't really new because we have stagnation sometimes overnight, sometimes during the day when we're not at home or at night when we're not at home. And in the issue, however, was this extended stagnation, this months-long stagnation potentially, or even longer, due to buildings being evacuated. So we're really interested in what types of issues may surface in buildings with this extended stagnation. We know that heavy metals like copper and lead can leach from plumbing into routine situations, but none of these materials are certified or approved to be in use for extended stagnation. So we have these plumbing systems that are in contact and holding this water while we're away that may be accumulating contaminants like copper, lead, and then even some bacteria that can be harmful that grows while we're away. Right, so Legionella pneumophila is of course one that we're interested in. Uh, This causes a respiratory disease which ended up being actually really interesting during COVID times because there were a couple of cases of misdiagnosis with Legionella or co-infections with Legionella and COVID. So it turned out to be a really relevant thing to be researching. 
I think there were a few cases, weren't there, of misdiagnosis. Do you want to talk about those, Andy? We've been on telephone calls with health departments across the country who are um, testing individuals now who are showing up to hospitals with the symptoms of COVID, but the symptoms are very similar to Legionnaire's disease. So they are now being tested. When they come in and exhibit symptoms for COVID, some of them are also being simultaneously tested for Legionnaire's disease. For those hospitals and maybe practitioners that are not doing that, there is potential concern that the pneumonia-like illness that surfaces in somebody who goes to the, the hospital may actually be waterborne and not caused by COVID. And those are very different treatment approaches. Maybe getting back to more about what we're doing on the issue. So we're in a variety of different buildings sampling the water to try to capture this data of what's happening during stagnation. We're in office buildings, we're in residential buildings, we're in school buildings, trying to look at what this extended stagnation of COVID is doing to these buildings' water. As we were doing it, though, we realized that the data we were collecting wouldn't be available for months, but people needed advice now. So, Andy, do you want to talk about what we did to get the word out and to uh, give advice to people immediately? You and I realized very quickly about the magnitude of this situation in that the world kind of didn't have like a cohesive understanding of what happens under all different types of stagnation conditions. So we started working with a number of different experts from around North America on putting together scientific literature to figure out what the world knows about stagnation. What's bad stagnation? You know, is an hour bad? Is two weeks bad? Is three months bad or or is it all okay? And, and that was really, really helpful. Um, we're so lucky to have worked with those individuals because um, I think we we're able to put out a pretty, pretty solid understanding for everybody else to jump from. So we got that out really fast. I think it was a month from idea conception to submission of the paper, which is unheard of for that many authors on one paper. <laughs> it, it was quite the quite the effort. From there, I think we also started talking with some of our co-authors and with other experts and realized that a number of people were doing building studies. So we also started to have conversations with them about the best way to go about doing building studies and contacting institutions to see if they'd like to have their water tested. Something else I think the public really needs to understand is, you know, public health officials in response to covid are being pulled in many different directions. And what happened was some of them are being pulled away from their water responsibilities in being sent out to set up COVID testing sites. So when building owners who called us called the health departments, they were getting a dial tone sometimes. The people that were supposed to be able to help them were being retasked to address this coronavirus pandemic directly. You know, you and I have probably got more calls than I think maybe some have with regards to direct requests for help and advice from building owners, from schools, from hotels, from office building owners about what exactly they need to do. And one of the challenges I think is that there, there isn't a prescribed cookie cutter approach for every building out there. And that's what we've kind of unearthed in the, the literature and through practice. Right. So that makes it even better that, you know, we're in a number of different buildings to try to study this problem. And, you know, people at other universities who are also in buildings trying to figure out what's happening so that, 
next time this occurs, you know, we know what to do for stagnation. Sounds like you've been talking to a lot of people over the last few months. How did you get information out to these important stakeholders? In response to all these requests for information, it's like Groundhog Day. Everybody asks you the same questions. You know, we created YouTube videos that we put online and people started watching them. You know, that was one way. We did direct engagement. We did webinars. We did, you know, all sorts of different ways to interact. We did media engagements just to raise awareness. But I think that's important to point out. Like the, the role of science isn't just to do the science and keep it in the lab. It's to drive it into the public space so that it can be immediately used or at least put into context. So, yeah, a lot of people uh, needed to understand fairly quickly that water sitting in buildings for a very long time is not a good thing. And in order to get the word out, we realized that we needed help in one way we did that was we teamed up with experts from all across North America on this review paper. Not only was it focused on the science and what the world knows about water stagnation, the health risks that may um, precipitate themselves, but we teamed up with these individuals that are located all across North America. And so then they became experts immediately, or if they weren't already, in their regions. And they've been supporting you know, health departments and universities and building owners in their regions. In addition to that, we've been pretty uh, deliberate in trying to drive this new knowledge into the public health space, into the building owner management association space, because we realized that results and efforts created in a laboratory or in a paper don't help people protect their friends or family, their building occupants and visitors. So we have been deliberate in setting up a website where we've had thousands of views sometimes um, just in a couple of weeks. We've been deliberate in, in engaging any and all media entity that wants to talk about this issue because we want to make sure that they can provide the information that their viewers need. And we've also conducted uh, scientific and applied like webinars, one hour teaching sessions for practitioners, public health officials, plumbing engineers, building contractors and building officials. So we're very happy to, to engage all these entities because we know that they want to do the best for their building and the people that visit it. And so the only way that they can do that is if they have the right information. Yeah, so it's a very different experience talking to the public than it is even to other scientists at a conference. Uh, we've realized that we have to use different words when we talk to the public to make everything understandable. Uh, we have to be very deliberate about the way we talk. I think we, we recorded some YouTube videos. And uh, one thing you might not know is that a 10-minute YouTube video probably takes three or four hours just to record it because it needs to be perfect and you can't say um. And there's not easy ways, at least, that I have to, to edit that. So uh, it's been quite the experience to really get into this public space, but a very necessary experience as well. What can you share from your rapid response study and what are the next steps? So we have found a number of things in a number of the buildings and I can't be too specific because we're still in the process of interpreting the results and um, digesting them and making sure that we can make sense of them. 
but we have found lead, we have found copper in high concentrations, we have found Legionella pneumophila, we have found high concentrations of total bacteria. So right now we're in the process of figuring out what this all means, what is maybe the cause of all these problems, um, and then we're working on flushing plans to see if we can really mitigate this problem and get good water into the system. And an important part of these studies is that we're going to continue to monitor the buildings even after we flush them. So if we flush them once and get really good quality water with high concentrations of disinfectant residual, that doesn't mean that if we go back in a week that the problems aren't gonna be there again just as bad as they were before. So uh, we're gonna look into this, you know, what is the long-term maintenance needed for these buildings? And, and one thing that we're seeing is with everyone figuring out their reopening plan is that these buildings are gonna have low use for, for quite some time. Uh, Andy, I know you've been working in schools and you have kids in school. I don't know if you wanna talk about what, how those plans might affect water quality. So definitely, I mean, all parents or friends or family members of people that are in school, whatever size school it is, should be paying attention to how the school is is managing their building water system. Um, because while everybody was gone or, or you have water moving more slowly through the building, uh, you have the potential for things to accumulate in that water and then pose a risk to those people at the ends of the faucets, whether they be showers or faucets or drinking water fountains. So yeah, so it's really important that uh, schools take this issue very seriously. And um, parents, what they can do is they can ask their schools what exactly they are doing to make certain that the water is safe to use, not just drink, but to use at the school building. Yeah, so that could be really problematic, especially with schools that are planning, you know, hybrid plans or something where they're going to have low use or only certain activities are allowed in the building. They're going to continue to have that low water use for, for quite some time. And I guess, isn't this a thing that would happen every summer? Yeah, schools uh, have this generally issue where they're, they have lower use during the summer than they do during the, the fall. And a prior study that we have shows that uh, there are issues sometimes in the summer that are not necessarily detected unless you're doing sampling or completely flush out the building. What else should the general public know from your findings? So one thing the general public might need to know is that water use we've been talking about, not just water drinking, could be problematic. So things like showering, you're going to inhale bacteria that are growing in the water, uh, especially with bacteria like Legionella pneumophila. These cause lung infections and inhaling it is the worst thing you can do. Drinking it won't be as problematic. So people should be aware of their water uses, for one, and the different exposures that they have to it. What can the average person do to find out if the water in their home, office building, or local school is safe? they could talk to the building owners and ask them. Generally, what you're seeing nowadays is building owners have COVID plans, how they are going to promote social distancing or physical distancing, how they're gonna clean surfaces, but you're not seeing building owners communicate if the rest of the building is safe in the systems that they're using. So I know there's a lot of discussion right now on HVAC and ventilation systems, 
and in promoting as much fresh air coming into the building and not recycling it. And there's really no discussion about building water systems. And so this is something that you as a, um, a parent who may be sending kids back to school or, or maybe the school's closed down and you're going to send the kids to the field and they're going to drink water out of the, the building anyways. Um, you know, these are things you can ask about is what are you doing and how are you making certain that the building water is safe? One last thing, um, flushing. Flushing is a, a general word uh, that some people use. And if somebody goes into a building that has 300 faucets and turns one faucet and lets it run for five minutes and walks out, they may say the building's flushed. But really, there's different levels of flushing, and that's how you can get all that old water out. You can, to really turn over a building, you have to turn over all the water in the building. That's a lot of work. <clears throat> and then once you turn over that water, it's just maintenance, making sure that you're moving the rest of the water through so that it doesn't get that old. So flushing is important to kind of refresh the building plumbing system. And I would definitely be thinking about asking building owners uh, how they're refreshing the building plumbing system when not many people are in the building or uh, due to the low use situations. Right. It would be, just be so cool if everyone had a, a water management plan. So these are, you know, documents that are required for medical facilities and nursing homes where they have to document how many fixtures they have, how many showers they have, and how they're going to keep those safe. Things like, you know, high temperatures in the hot water and cold temperatures in the cold water to limit growth are included, maintenance of filters, all those sorts of things. And just having it written down could be really helpful. So... You know, maybe this pandemic will precipitate that everyone has a building water management plan and thinks about it more. So that'd be really cool. Yeah, it would. And, and individuals need to find reputable people to talk with about this. Because I think uh, you and I were on a, a call recently and we heard from some public health professionals that uh, some of the water management plans developed by some groups um, block and copy the wrong information into them. And so... You know, if building owners have a water management plan, maybe they should go check it out if they haven't looked at it in a while. Um, and if they don't, then they should find somebody who knows what they're doing uh, to help them develop one. Because now's the time to really start understanding your building water system and making sure that when people come and visit, that uh, the building water system is not something you have to think about anymore because it does not pose a health risk. Drs. Walton and Proctor, you are both very passionate about your work. What keeps you going? What motivates you to pursue this type of research and public outreach? So generally when I turn on the faucet and knowing what I know now, I have a lot of thoughts raised through my mind. And the questions are generally, how old is that water? What's in it? Just because I can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. And is it safe for my friends, family, and coworkers? This is a basic question many people find themselves asking at some point during their lives, whether they have children and their children is bathing in water and maybe it's a weird color or you're at work and weird colored water comes out of the faucet. And you always wonder, what is that? Is that, should I be touching that should 
Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to get sick? And so I do this primarily because it's a basic question about personal safety that people ask themselves. There's a lot of people that deserve the right to know if the water that they're using or have a choice to use could harm them or not. So generating knowledge about what to do with unsafe water or how to avoid unsafe water is the basic necessity. Uh, I'll follow up on that. Water is a, a basic human right, and no one should have to think twice about the water coming out of their faucet. Is this safe? So by doing the work that we're doing, we hope to find ways to make buildings safer, find ways to inform the public about how they can manage their own water quality. Uh, so in doing that, we hope that you know you won't have to think about the water coming out of your faucet and won't have to think that it's safe or, or if it's not safe. This space is, is ripe for innovation, for advancement, and it will benefit every American. If you can go to a faucet and not have to worry about the water causing you to get ill, whether it's due to extended stagnation or seasonal shutdowns of a campground and you go back and you're the first user of that water, or you know, you're staying in a hotel and the hotel doesn't tell you you are on the wing that hasn't been used in a month. You know, these are like basic issues that you have to address. And, and right now, nobody's doing that to the degree that they need to. And so I'm in, I do this and, and I'm involved because somebody has to do it. And there's a whole group of people out there that do this stuff. You know, Dr. Proctor and a whole bunch of other individuals at different institutions and private sector. But, you know, somebody has to answer those questions. And I think that's why we're doing it is because, as Dr. Proctor said, water is a basic human right. Safe water is a basic human right. Thank you, Drs. Welton and Proctor, for your time, for discussing your NSF Rapid Response Project, and most especially for your efforts related to water safety from plumbing infrastructure. Be sure to listen to the two other Purdue Engineering podcasts featuring Tripoli faculty and see the show notes on the podcast website for additional information about environmental and ecological engineering. Tune in next month for more from the College of Engineering.